our footprint for each business, each company out there, extends beyond the four corners of the organization. And it's also about who you chose to do business with. It's also about who you chose to profit from. And it's not enough that you can just say, well, I outsource the bad stuff. This is Tom Fox. Welcome to a special podcast series, Supply Chain and ESG, What You Need to Know. Over this podcast series, we're going to take a look at ESG drivers, the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, supply chains and ESG, the new world of product compliance and ESG, scope three emissions reporting strategy, and responsible minerals supply chain and ESG. This special podcast series is sponsored by Ascent. But first, a quick word about Ascent. Did you know that for most sectors, the majority of an organization's ESG risks come from their supply chain? It's no secret that your supply chains are complex, but capturing your ESG data from them should not be. Ascent is the leading provider of ESG and product compliance solutions, combining software and expertise all in one place to help you see deeper into your supply chain and uncover hidden risks that affect your sustainability score. Check out Ascent.com for free ESG resources and to learn how Ascent can help you jumpstart your supply chain sustainability program. In this second episode, we take up the Weir Forced Labor Protection Act supply chains and ESG. In this episode, I'm joined by Travis Miller, General Counsel at Ascent. Travis is an international trade and compliance attorney. He handles Ascent's worldwide legal activities. I'm also joined by Jamie Walsich, regulatory and sustainability expert, ESG and responsible sourcing. Her area of expertise is media monitoring with a specialization in indirect screening and responsible sourcing. She has worked closely with the Department of Labor, focusing on conflict minerals, child labor, CSR, and ESG initiatives. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode. Today, we're going to take up the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act. I'm thrilled to have with me Travis Miller and Jamie Walsich to join in this not only most important law, but actually the law that I think is going to make a big difference and be the model for many other similar types of legislation going forward. But before we get going, Travis, could I start with you and ask you to tell us your current role at Ascent? Absolutely. And thanks for the opportunity to be on, Tom. So my name's Travis Miller. I am an attorney, environmental scientist. I've been doing this my whole career since I was young and good looking like Jamie all the way till today. I blame each one of these lost follicles on a compliance question or two. So as you can see, well experienced. All things considered here at Ascent, I do serve as the company's general counsel, director of our U.S. subsidiary, and I'm also a member of something called our subject matter, a regulatory team. So uh, when questions come up, if there's any adverse events that end up happening for our client base, you get called in by a cadre of experts, myself included, but least and certainly not less important, Jamie over there who can come in and actually knock people's socks off. Yeah. Thanks, Tom, and then thanks, Travis, for that nice introduction. So my name is Jamie Wallish. I am also part of the regulatory team at Ascent, and I've been with Ascent for a little over a year. My background is in the space of child labor, conflict minerals, and overall CSR, so corporate social responsibility. And I used to do all of that within the U.S. Department of Labor, so that naturally 
helped me transition to Ascent, where I now focus on our ESG offering and a little more specific within what we call our indirect monitoring solution. So focus on adverse media screening and denied party screening. So really looking forward to the conversation. So perhaps I might start with you, Jamie, to focus on the act itself. Could you tell us the parameters of the law, how this law is really different than many of the other laws, certainly we've seen in the United States, perhaps even further than many of the anti-modern slavery laws we've seen outside of the United States? And what are the consequences going to be, you think, from the enforcement angle? Absolutely. So to kind of preface what the law is, the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act is a United States federal law that prohibits importing into the U.S. goods made in whole or in part by forced labor in the Xinjiang region of China or made by forced labor in other parts of China by Uyghurs or other minorities. So really, it is expected to operate as a de facto trade ban on goods from Xinjiang and related entities, given the significant obstacles businesses will face in meeting the high burden needed to obtain an expectation of forced labor presumption. So we can tell that this is the most significant law and act placed around this particular issue of forced labor. It is the most tangible and concrete in terms of repercussions that potential countries would face. And that is really going to be seen in terms of the documentation that they would have to provide to U.S. Customs and Border Protection. It's pretty significant. And I don't know if Travis wants to add in anything else to that. I say fabulous job catching it. You know, in my 20 years of doing this, I've never seen a law ever. It's required companies to do so much, to have such insights. It's actually um, CBP and the associated Rubio bill that generated this law asking companies to look back into where the actual sand came from. They got turned into the polysilica. They got turned into the semiconductor. They got turned into the circuit board. They got turned into the device that finds its way into your laptop that you're looking at. So that blend, that level of knowledge, there's just never been anything like it. So one of the things that intrigues me about this law is, as Jamie, you may not know, but Travis certainly knows, I grew up in the anti-bribery, anti-corruption compliance space. So I tend to see things through that lens and that angle. But this law touches on so many aspects of the corporate function. I see it as an ABC, in addition, of course, to trade and economic sanctions. But within the broader context of U.S.-China relations, is this a law that you think focuses on the human element, the anti-slavery element, or the modern trafficking, if we could even take it there? Is it a part of an overall trade strategy or, or perhaps all of the above? To answer simply, absolutely. It's combining all elements of what you would expect to see in corporate social responsibility and even beyond that, this big movement around environmental, social, and governments. So the UFLPA is a first signal from the U.S. government that all of this is not only integrated, but is highly important and relevant to each other and to where we want to go and who we want to do business with and knowing that they're complying and meeting those standards as well. So it's all relevant and it's all coupled together. And it's really signaling the, the intersectionality of all these particular topics under CSR and ESG. Travis, if it's really true that you have lost hair for every compliance question you've been asked, those in export control or trade sanctions may be looking forward to losing a lot of hair over this law. So with that intro, 
How would you assess the compliance requirements of this law, including due diligence requirements? I'd say the interesting thing is how much this law and the guidance weave together existing business processes. And it's true that you couldn't actually comply with this law unless you had kind of been following the breadcrumbs and you had been working on all the other programs collectively. So for a little bit of background, the law itself, in my opinion, birthed out of the America Supply Chain Executive Order and the U.S.-China Trade War, which looked at the various elements where there were deficiencies inside of America's supply chain. And it specifically focused on semiconductors, critical raw materials, elements that are the subject of the extractives that we're now focusing on. But to comply with it, you couldn't actually even start unless you already had a product compliance program in place. So if you don't know the bill of materials, if you don't know the approved vendor list, if you don't know where your components are, how do you even begin to start your trade compliance work? To figure out what the country of origin is of those raw materials. Because you don't know the base elements, the data. They should have come from a Ross or a REACH program. And until you did the country of origin and the classification of commodities and goods, how do you even begin the ESG program? Which relates to the raw material sourcing, the conflict minerals, the anti-bribery, the anti-corruption investigations. How do you even start those investigative processes into the behavioral patterns that went into the production? of those extractives. So really, in my opinion, the UFLPA isn't novel in that it created something new. It's novel in that it's forcing companies to use all of the existing business processes to tie back the breadcrumbs and figure out things that they should already know, and then to be responsible for reporting on them. Jimmy, if I could turn to you, how would you expect a regulator to assess a company's compliance program with this law? Would you expect documentation, or maybe the other way to phrase it would be if a company came to you and said, Jamie, what do we need to do process-wise to be able to respond to a regulatory inquiry, whether it's a a subpoena or informal inquiry? How would you encourage them to begin? So I think there's a couple steps in terms of tackling a delivery in this capacity and for this particular law. The bare minimum that you would need to meet and comply with is showing proof and evidence that you don't have forced labor that's included within the products that you're importing. So this means a standard baseline in terms of human and trafficking and slavery, as well as capturing other data through the public domain that's associated with forced labor. So this is continuously trolling and scrutinizing any potential suppliers that could have relations to this region and seeing if there's any risk or actions that are associated with that. So That's the bare minimum is capturing both kind of the HTS side, capturing that directly from your supply chain or attempting to, and then coupling that with what else is out there within the public realm. So like I said, that's bare minimum. In addition to that, it's going to be vital down the road to try to capture information around the trade compliance space. So capturing HS codes, country of origin to really help verify and make sure that where your materials and products are coming, as well as the items within those products, aren't trace-backed or linked in any capacity to Uyghur or anyone associated with it. So I would say those are the two main steps that companies would need to adhere to and try to obviously comply with. Travis, I was very intrigued by your, I don't want to say analogy, because I think it's a real story about the grain of sand and how you really have to go back to that grain. But then you articulated 
each one of the members of the supply chain who would utilize that grain of sand in their particular product, leading to an end product. One of the key themes that I've picked up in this podcast series is, yes, ESG has certain regulatory requirements. There may be legal requirements, investor pressures or others, but there's also opportunity. If you are required to look at your scope three emissions from your suppliers, if you are required to take a deep dive into the supply chain for other reasons, it gives you information to improve your business processes. Could a company look at compliance with a law such as this and say, yes, we have to do this from a regulatory perspective, but it may actually give us an opportunity to improve or even have better visibility into the business operation we call our supply chain? Yeah, absolutely. I'd suggest to you that the entire ESG movement, if it becomes what it should become, which is a force of corporations to actually have to look at their operations, to look at their activities, and not some, you know, tangential, you know, wild card. Like this month, you know, I'm going to color my logo for diversity or something to that nature. But actually having to look at the harms that they've caused and do what businesses do best, which is to self-evaluate and figure out ways that they can mitigate those risks and those liabilities, it becomes one of the most powerful movements in history up there with anti-bribery, anti-corruption, those types of programs. But to do so requires us to recognize that our footprint for each business, each company out there, extends beyond the four corners of the organization. And it's also about who you chose to do business with. It's also about who you chose to profit from. And it's not enough that you can just say, well, I outsource the bad stuff. It's okay that I have slaves in my supply chain because I don't have them internally. It's okay that bribery is happening in my supply chain because it's not happening by me. That's no longer a sufficient answer. And that's really what's coming to light. It's this assessment. It's this realization that You are the sum of your components. You are the sum of your relationships. The business is not an island. It's everything being pulled together and your entire impact on the globe, on the people, on the world, on the business processes that derives your profitability now have to be considered. And that's quite revolutionary if you think about it. Jamie, we have mentioned several times U.S.-China relations, political relations, and this perhaps trade war relations. And I wondered if I might be able to broaden the scope of the question out to a broader, certainly China, but also Asia question, which is how should companies be thinking strategically about this part of the world? We recently had a a lot of kerfuffle around Taiwan and China and this law as well. But how do you help companies now? And hopefully they're thinking about it or talking to you now about those broader strategic issues in the context of supply chain. It's a great question. I think what's important to note, and it may seem obvious, but it's a journey. It's long-term. And so you really have to think in that capacity and not be frustrated or overwhelmed in regards to the particular situations that are happening in that region or around whatever space it may be in. So it's just appreciating that it's going to take some time to understand a proper method in terms of engagement and in terms of understanding what's going on there and getting that appropriate data to help support understanding your your supply chain in scope three. So with that being said, there's multiple methods that companies can take advantage of to try to capture that information. And 
probably the most general way I can frame it is looking at it through a direct and indirect lens. So directly engaging with your suppliers to the best of your ability, trying to ask them questions directly around particular topics that are applicable to you, but also in terms of international laws and standards. So making sure that you're mindful about what's applicable material to your four walls, but also your industry and your verticals and your investors and your customers. So making sure that you're capturing information in that regard. And then also indirectly and specifically within the Asia region, that's probably going to be more profound and telling than doing that directly with them, right? Asking directly to them. So what information out there within the public space can you capture on these particular suppliers or on this particular region to help fill in those gaps of what may be missing? And again, that's a process, that's a journey, but being able to utilize the vast amount of information that's out there is going to be critical in terms of understanding what's going on in that particular region, but also where those particular suppliers sit with those situations. Guys, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I hope our listeners will join us for our next episode where we're going to take up a topic near and dear to my heart, which is tying product compliance to sustainability. But before we leave, if our listeners wanted any more information on Ascent or continue this conversation, what would be the best way for them to do so? I'd say you're going to be hearing from us. You know, as it pans out, Come September, Ascent is having our big launch, where we're going to be talking more and more about how the product ties to the behavioral patterns that went into the production of it. We'd invite you to share those journeys. You know, we're going to be going through dinners all over the country. We're going to be speaking at a whole host of different events. We'd love to see you. We'd love to participate. And we finally have the chance to get out and to mingle and to talk and to get together again. So stay tuned. Stay aware. A sense coming to a city near you. I really hope we have the chance to meet each other face to face. Travis, what's the Ascent website? www.ascent.com. Well, guys, I greatly appreciate you taking the time to visit with me, and I look forward to continuing this conversation and hopefully coming to a city near you as well. Take care. Thank you so much.